Film Society Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're sharing our director's dialogue with legendary documentarian Errol Morris from the 56th New York Film Festival. The director of classic nonfiction films like The Thin Blue Line and The Fog of War has spent much of his career confronting and interrogating controversial figures in positions of power. Kent Jones sat down with Morris to talk about his experience interviewing Steve Bannon for his latest film, American Dharma. Let's go to that now. We were just backstage talking, and I think we thought that we were going to begin where we left off last night. Um, that's specifically in relation to American Dharma. How many people in the audience have seen American Dharma? Okay, very good. That's great. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, I guess it's not a spoiler to say that Bannon lives in the end, right? Um, but we were, Errol, there was a, 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 a question that was posed to you after the screening last night um, where someone was wishing that you had taken Bannon to task more condemned him fully. And you gave what I thought was a very good answer, which was that you can't just look at evil, condemn it, and then walk away. You've got to look it in the face much more carefully than that and the importance of that. So I wanted to start there. Uh, If I may, (laughs) I would add to that. Every time I do one of these films, and I'm not sure why I do them, what compels me to do them, if you like, what kind of deep character deficiency causes me to do them. But I think about the nature of interviews. Um, I've never really believed in adversarial interviews, whatever they might be because I'm not sure that it's a way to get anything of interest. It's not a moralistic stance. It's a pragmatic stance, if anything. Um, This is a quote from Einstein. I think it is that an example of idiocy is doing things the same way and expecting different results. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, You always have to find a different way in. Uh, You have to find a different way of scrutinizing whatever it is you have at hand. In this case, it was to put Bannon at the center of his dreams. If he inhabits this strange make-believe world of movies, um, principally movies from the 40s and 50s, if his favorite movie is 12 o'clock high, which it is, why not put him right in the middle of 12 o'clock high? It's a crazy idea, okay, I confess. It's a crazy idea, but why not? Why not put him with his dreams? Uh, So we built on a set this Quonset hut, which is the central image from 12 o'clock high. Uh, so what is the effect of that? I'm not altogether sure. When I start to talk to him about his favorite movies, he is completely forthcoming, very happy to tell me what each one of these movies, which he himself has chosen. I didn't choose the movies, he chose each and every one of them. Uh, Paths of Glory, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, 12 O'Clock High. Searchers. The Searchers. Not only did he pick the Searchers, 
but he picks the most racist scene. <laughs> the most racist scene yeah. in John Ford. And there yeah. are a lot of them, but somehow he finds the most racist scene of all. She's not white. Mm. She's Comanche. Mm. Why? Why that scene? Um, I would say the choice of that scene, the interpretation of Bridge on the River Kwai, the interpretation of... Chimes at Midnight. Chimes at Midnight are some of the strangest and most powerful things I've ever put on film. Mm. At least I like it. Can't speak <laughs> for the next guy, but I like it. And those were the terms that you went to when you started, when you made overtures to Bannon and said, hey, I'm interested in making a movie about you, Did was framing it within you know the context of his favorite movies on the table at the beginning? Or was that something that... Uh, Yes. Okay. Right from the very, very beginning. Yep. And he was into it. He was into making a movie with you. Yes. Yep. Because he liked The Fog of War. He loved The Fog of War. Yeah. You know, you can't choose your fans. <laughs> yeah. And as you were shooting... I don't know how many days you shot. It looks like, you know, a fair amount of time. Um, really not that many days. Five interview days okay. and another day for shooting visuals. And how did it go? Was it just smooth sailing the whole way through? <laughs> no. One thing that I, I realized, if I didn't know it already, before I even had started to interview Bannon is the, he has a stump speech, boilerplate. Yeah. Uh, call it whatever you want to call it, but it's a rote recitation of stuff. Mm. That's why I, I love the criticism of you didn't ask tough enough questions. You didn't hold his feet to the fire. I love when the torture imagery comes out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I suppose you didn't hit him with a brick in the middle of the interview. <laughs> or a cinder block. There's a, a movie that I've always loved. The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. Yeah. It's a Japanese film. Kazuo Hara. It's about a, a guy, Mr. Okazaki, who is pursuing his brother's killers. His, his brother was killed in New Guinea and eaten by his commanding officers. You would call it a kind of dark story involving murder, cannibalism, etc. And Mr. Okazaki is looking, what do they call it, for some kind of closure. Yeah. So he goes around in this van festooned with slogans, loudspeakers mounted on the top, blaring away, stopping at various houses. It's the usual commanding officer, Mr. Okazaki, they bow to each other, tea is served, questions are asked. And at a certain point, Mr. Okazaki interrupts and says, that is not an answer. An answer is yes or no. And then the officer goes on, rattles on, and goes on for a while. And Mr. Okazaki interrupts again and says, that is not an answer. An answer is yes or no. The guy starts going on, and then at a certain point, Mr. Okazaki, it's every interviewer's fantasy, including mine, I'll fess up. Mr. Okazaki leaps up across the table and tries to strangle the person he's interviewing. <laughs> Literally, 
we're not talking figuratively here, literally tries to strangle the person he's interviewing. And the film was roundly criticized, not unexpectedly, because you think this is no way to conduct an interview, which would be more or less correct. And how come the filmmakers just passively watched while this was happening and recorded everything instead of intervening, saying, no, 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 don't do that. So I don't know what people want. Um, closure. <laughs> I guess they want closure. Yeah, that was my fantasy about Genesis, that Adam and Eve asked God about closure. How will we get closure? And God thought for a moment and said, how about death? How do you like that? For closure. You like that? Well, you got it. <laughs> yeah. How about death? <sighs> um, Sorry. <laughs> but in terms of the question of movies, there's something that, you know, I mean, you, you, the term that you use is fungibility of, of movies and... and Sounded like a fancy way of putting it. Yeah, you know. That they're, but I think that I, the way it seems to me that Bannon looks at films is, and a lot of people do this, I suppose, is they look at it with their own lens and they set up their own framework and they elide what you know doesn't work within that framework and they zero in on what they want. In his case, um, he does a lot more of it. I mean, his interpretation of Chimes at Midnight requires work, you know. It's strange because I like to think that they're unitary explanations, one explanation that's better than all the others. Yeah. And in fact, I wrote something about Rashomon, the Rashomon of Rashomon, yeah. because I felt that Kurosawa had one explanation, which he believed was the correct one. And this wasn't a story about the subjectivity of truth. It was a story about the avoidance of truth. A very different kind of thing. So uh, here you have these movies. Um, Bannon, because he's talking about Dharma, Dharma, duty, destiny. Um, I guess everything turns out to be about Dharma. All movies turn out to be about Dharma, the fulfillment of Dharma. And what can be more fulfilling than the fulfillment of Dharma? I see Orson Welles as Falstaff groveling before the newly crowned Henry V. His old pal. His old Drinking buddy. Yep. Um, is this a betrayal? Is this what happens in a dynastic succession? Mm. Is Falstaff delighted? Oh boy, he's king now. I've done my job. And the fact that he has insulted me and rejected me and Threaten me with death if I approach closer than 10 mile, hmm. in Shakespeare's words. That's great. <laughs> we there go. Mission accomplished. Closure. Mission yeah. accomplished. <laughs> I have fulfilled my dharma. <laughs> I got blown out of the sky over Germany. I yeah. fulfilled my dharma. I betrayed, you know, my companions. Uh, I made a, a calculation uh, uh, that cooperating with the Japanese would be a way of saving lives. I lost my way. I deceived myself into thinking that building a bridge for the Japanese was the right thing to do. Yeah, what's Colonel Nicholson doing, I guess? It's that Dharma thing Dharma, again. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, wait a second. Can't you justify anything that way? You know? Are the Nazis fulfilling their dharma by killing the Jews? I mean, wait one second here. This is a, a one-size-fits-all kind of deal. Yeah, but the dharma is one component in this kind of weird agglomeration of, of things that are the movies, this sort of like vague memory of left-wing rebellion coupled with, you know, the Pat Buchanan right-wing, you know, version of it. Um, and then there's the whole insight into the the internet and the cyber world and how that worked, which was quite prescient of him, obviously. Um, and the way that it all works together is it kind of doesn't. <laughs> Dharma just becomes like a, a very vague, you know, word to sort of describe of it all. All Pergus knocked a yep. Halloween of ideas mm -hmm. that don't really sit very well together. Mm. Um, I think that you were saying last night that you felt that Bannon was the first person that you had ever spoken to who really was evil, because as opposed to McNamara, as opposed to Rumsfeld, um, this is someone who really was in it for wanton destruction. I don't know if I believe in evil incarnate. Um, I don't believe even John Milton, who is the ultimate connoisseur of evil, believed in evil incarnate. I certainly do believe in evil acts. But evil acts always need to be understood or at least examined. Um, how did he arrive at this very, very strange place, this love of cyclical history? When I was in my 20s, I loved Toynbee and Spengler, the idea that history just repeats itself endlessly like some kind of infernal machine and that we are just cogs being ripped and carried along by some inexorable process. Um, actually, I think it's much worse. There's a kind of chaos to history. Um, I tried to talk about it with Bannon, not so successfully. What do you mean? To me, history is more like the weather, call it the butterfly effect, or whatever you you want to call it, whatever nomenclature you prefer to use. Um, strange things happen, and they have unexpected, catastrophic results. I'll give you an example. Who would have thought that America could be destroyed by one man's uncontrollable desire to take pictures of his penis and to send them to underage women on the internet. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony Weiner. In the many, many perverse explanations that I've heard for the 2016 election, Try that one on. <laughs> um, but do you really believe that when you say America could be destroyed, do you really believe that that's what, what's happened or that democracy is going to prevail? I'm actually scared. Um, people have uh, attacked me and the movie for quote unquote giving Bannon a platform. Um, whatever that means, I guess I built a platform for him, I put him on the platform and allowed him to address all of these people who eventually might see this movie that I made. Um, and then there's this other strange expression, Deplatforming. 
think it's just come recently into existence. Um, this person does not have the right to be heard. The ideas are so deeply pernicious and despicable that he should be silenced. Um, we should all turn our back on him. Uh, I don't agree, again. To me, I think it's very, very important to listen to him. You don't agree with the idea of taking Alex Jones out of the... No, not really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, although things have changed, maybe the people in this audience can tell me uh, better than anybody. Uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote this very famous dissent uh, where he talked about the marketplace of ideas, that in the marketplace of ideas, good ideas would win out against bad ideas. The truth would win out against falsehood. But the internet has changed everything. And it's not clear where we end up. Although one thing is still clear, that when you start to censor people, who makes the decision? Who makes the decision who can speak and who must be silenced? And beyond that, if we are really under a threat, a real threat to our democracy, and I believe that we are, are we going to resolve this by just turning our back on it and pretending it isn't there? And I would respectfully submit that that would not be prudent on our part. But the, but the question is, what is it that we would be turning our back on? Um, I think an abandonment of what I consider to be core American values. Um, the fact that, that we accept people of different races, uh, different nationalities, different creeds, um, that this is or could be some kind of melting pot. Um, core American values of decency being abandoned left and right um, what's most clear to me is that Bannon has created a smokescreen of bullshit. National populism. As I say in the movie, this is not populism. This is anti-populism. You don't preside over a tax bill that funnels money to the rich. You don't try to destroy basic protections for lower income people by depriving them of medical care. Uh, you don't destroy the environment under the guise of promoting employment. You don't build a wall predicated on racism and intolerance under the suspicion that people will agree with you because they also are filled with racist sentiment. You don't do that kind of thing. You don't pander to evil. But there is also the reality that um, <clears throat> she won a lot more popular votes than he did that it takes a massive effort of gerrymandering and you know somebody bullying their way past you know um, considering a Supreme Court nominee so that they could get to the possibility of a new president who would you know it takes so much effort and the you know as as I think um, Barbe Schroeder who I know is a you know a friend of yours who you've you've shown the film to and who made an, a film a couple of years ago that was actually bears a similarity to American Dharma, um, the Venerable W, about Viratu in, in um, Myanmar, um, that it's, you know, that 
mythical 33%, like in Germany, where there was, you know, it's, it's, it's a minority, but it's an organized minority that's always in communication with each other and always on message. Um, so you're talking about the majority moving in another way or having already moved in another way, no? The fear is, can we take back the country? And mm -hmm. Although it was a victory, um, it was a victor, victory by a very, very slim margin. Mm -hmm. um, somehow there are, you know, a hundred or so counties involved determine who will be the next president of the United States. Of course, they're the midterms as well. Yeah. Um, I, I made the movie because I wanted to weigh, on, weigh in on what's going on. Um, if I voted for Hillary out of fear, I made this movie also out of fear. Um, and a certain hopefulness. You had said a couple minutes ago that you wanted to maybe hear from the audience about the specific question sure. related to, you know, um, this this question of who who gets to ban, um, should information flow freely. You know, if Alex Jones is banned by Twitter, that means he's banned by a corporation. Um, and so, you know, what does that mean? What about these questions of letting information flow freely? If anybody wants to chime in um, or to ask Errol about anything else, please. Good evening. Uh, again, last night I really enjoyed your film, even though I have issues with the, the subject. Um, you liked my film, but you wished I had a different subject. I have issues with the subject. I mean, you can, you know, do that. Um, in terms of uh, free speech, uh, we see uh, Trump and forces on, the, uh, on his side attacking journalists, attacking, you know, fr uh, enemies of the people, free uh, um, fake news and all that crap. Uh, isn't there also a similar da danger of those of us, uh, including myself in a way, on the left, uh, we see the situation with uh, Dave Rednick had to back out from inviting Bannon next weekend's uh, New Yorker Festival. We have a different situation where a friend of mine who used to be the editor of the New York Review Books had to walk away from that job. For, a, f a, for, friend, a friend of mine as well. Yes, uh, right. Um, I'm curious, is there... Uh, What's going on with in terms of like be able to have uh, free speech? We have situations, you know, people on the far right that you know getting death threats when they go to you know uh, try to speak at Ber Berkeley or other things like. I used to work years ago with the late Christopher Hitchens, so I know the situation about you know you know free speech basically. Um, recently, I had a conversation. Uh, he, he works uh, for Bloomberg and has written a book, a really excellent book about Bannon, Joshua Green, uh, called The Devil's Bargain. And I had shown the movie to Joshua Green very early on, not to advertise my wares unduly, but he said it was a textbook example of how to interview Bannon. But we talked about deplatforming as an idea. And he, he said to me, that's what Hillary tried to do to Trump. Tried to discredit Trump, tried to say we should ignore him, shouldn't look at him. The people who like him are inherently deplorable. You know the rest. I don't have to go on and on and on and on. And you also know the result. Um, I would respectfully submit that the effort to discredit by just banning backfires in the end. Um, do I believe that true ideas will win out against false ones or that good ideas will win out against bad ones? I, I, I don't know, but we don't have very much of an alternative. Yeah. One, here's the microphone. I don't know if that's... One second. I was interested in, in your saying that Bannon shows the movies 
I got the impression you also chose the scenes. Is that correct? Yes. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> you wouldn't, the, the closing scene of The Searchers was not an available option? It's an available option. You didn't choose it. Yeah, I'm saying for you to put it consistent with what your ground rules with Bannon, because I think the, the closing scene of The Searchers basically is, is even more of an essence of what he's arguing in terms of uh, the Orson Welles movie. Uh, do you mean where he comes back, he leaves her, delivers her, and then goes goes away? Because he's unfit yeah. to be mm -hmm. in human. He's done his duty, he's delivered his, he's brought his niece back, and then he... And he's otherwise unfit for... Uh, for right. Uh, for civilization. Right. Um, I find The Searchers in... in endlessly complex and fascinating movie also. that in many ways captures America and many of the contradictions that make up America. Um, it, it, it's a sobering thought and both Kent and I and probably a lot of you out there love movies. Um, that's why we're here in good After measure. all, yeah. After all is said and done, we love movies, fell in love with movies, wanted to make movies, wanted to show movies, wanted to think about movies. But Bannon, actually, this is another frightening thought. Can movies be interpreted in just such disparate ways? What if I'm in the Third Reich watching 12 o'clock high. Um, what does the searchers really tell us about America and our tortured relationship to race? Um, but Errol, as you said, the searchers is an endlessly complex movie. Indeed it is. And. Um, if you were watching it in the Third Reich, it would still be an endlessly complex movie, but it probably wouldn't have been made, you know, um, under Goebbels. He didn't. He didn't have a habit of making endlessly complex movies. Um, they were very well made, technically. And, and after all, when the time came to construct a movie to to show Nazi war crimes at Nuremberg, who was selected to make the movie? John Ford, and George among Stevens. others. Yeah, yeah. And Alfred Hitchcock was the one who made the film about the, yes. the camps. Yeah. When you and uh, Steve Bannon agreed to make this film, were there any restrictions in uh, subject matter, or could you talk about whatever you wanted? Uh, there were no restrictions. Um, he, I had final cut. I said to him, I'm happy to show you various cuts within reason as we go along, but the final decision about what to put in the movie or not to put in the movie has to rest with me. Otherwise, the movie would have no credibility whatsoever. So no, for better or for worse, my decision's not his. Thank you. Well, he chose this, except for the scenes. He chose the scenes from the movies. He didn't force me, <laughs> but he did suggest them, yes. But did he feel, did you, do you think that he felt that in some way the film was going to become a platform for him? Why did, you know, if he you know, had a real appreciation of the fog of war, um, surely he saw the complexity of that film. Um, I think he believed that I would do something complex. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I did something complex, perhaps he could use it in part to his advantage. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't, in other words, you're saying that you did not do something complex? I think I did. I think yeah, I think you did too. Um, I think it is a complex movie. It's not a movie which is a hatchet job, which I think a lot of people 
wanted me to do. But I also don't know what, in what way he could use the movie to his advantage. That would be a stretch. He's obviously interested in promoting himself. You're asking me several questions at once. You're asking me how he saw this enterprise and why he yes. participated. Right. And a question ultimately that True. I cannot answer, but I do have my hunches. Yes. Um, and I've thought long and hard about this. I would be dishonest to pretend otherwise. They had this strategy at Breitbart. They realized that if they just published something themselves, people might reject it. So let's see if we can plant the information that we want to publish in some respectable paper, say like the New York Times. Yes, yeah, for instance, yeah. Um, their obsessions with the Clinton Foundation, with Hillary Clinton, yeah. an entire book that was written to discredit the Clinton Foundation and to discredit mm -hmm. the Clintons, Clinton cash. Um, they are, by their own account, absolutely ruthless. Uh, they're honey badgers, mm -hmm. as he himself proudly proclaims. Honey badger just does what it's got to do. Honey badger don't give a shit. Honey badger isn't involved in moral complexities. Mm -hmm. um, honey badger just kills and eats. Um, it's not a very elevated view of... of the human mission, I might add. Um, a kind of despairing, angry, destructive view mm -hmm. of everything. Why did I burn, and after all, I'm the one who lit the fire. Why did I burn down the Quonset hut in the end? I burned it down because to me it was a symbol of what Bannon wanted to do to the world. that at the heart of it was some kind of desire for destruction. There's no positive program here. You know, he gets annoyed in the movie when I say, you know, what good does it do? Hmm. You know, I call, you know, to throw the, 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 the DACA children out of America. Um, calling Trump, which I do believe is true, the fuck you president. You know, what is his policies? They're fuck you policies. You know, um, if there's anything that is consistent, it's, you know, give to big business, give to the rich, fuck you, if you don't agree. Um, I <laughs> We talked about this briefly. Um, I, I'm Jewish. Uh, do I like anti-Semitism? Not so much. Um, not at all. So there's Bannon with Marine Le Pen. You know, anti-Semitism is on the rise again in France. Um, I would call it a recrudescence of anti-Semitism in France, except that never went anywhere. <laughs> um, um, it's alive and well. And Bannon is there. By the way, he argues this is not racist. Um, you know, they call you a xenophobe, they call you a nativist, they call you a racist. Wear it as a badge of honor. And he says, I've misinterpreted that. Hmm, I don't think so. Misinterpreted it. He, he, he said he wanted me to add a line. Okay, and I added the line. It makes it even worse. Um, he then, after the film was finished, called Macron a pathetic... Rothschild. Little Rothschild little. banker. 
And I know what he's saying. He's saying something that is really deeply anti-Semitic. And he's saying it to people that he knows are deeply anti-Semitic. I asked a Jewish friend of mine, a professor at Harvard Law School, is this a dog whistle? And he looked at me, it's not a dog whistle, it's a whistle whistle. When do you start calling someone a racist because they pander to racists? Um, but they don't openly stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm for the supremacy of the white race and the destruction of everybody else. No, there's this weasel position, you know, Charlottesville, well, there are bad people on both sides. Um, really not anti-Semitic, uh, even though people um, are talking about Jews in the street, Jews will not replace us, that's not anti-Semitic. Um, it's like a Looney Tunes world. I remember seeing this movie years and years, I haven't thought about it for years, called Pressure Point. Sidney Poitier, Bobby Duran. The yeah. very same. He's so familiar with movies. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> and there's a Nazi rally, and everyone is giving the Hitler salute, uh, Siegheil. And in this instance, they're singing Home on the Range. <laughs> All with the Nazi salute. And I remember watching this and thinking, God, this is terrible. <laughs> this is really terrible. Mm. But he's wrapped himself in the cloak of the, the impoverished middle class, mm -hmm. um, in the cloak of, I love this expression, uh, love meant ironically, we're giving people their sovereignty back. Really? You're giving me my sovereignty back? I never really knew about my sovereignty. I'm not even sure I even know what it is. But not you. No, I don't get my sovereignty yeah, back. Yeah, not the elitists or the artists. Um, I mean, for him, history is the Crusades. We beat back, you know, uh, Islam, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, and if necessary, we'll just repeat it again. Um, it's a kind of strange Manichaean world. It's the world of Hollywood movies, among other worlds. World of absolute good and evil where all that matters is your town with those two American flags flying. Several people that I know got angry with me and said, how dare you use some of the greatest American movies ever made to illustrate the ideas of this man. Um, I apologize. Uh, I'm sorry. But, you know, that stuff is in there. But he's the one who's using them to illustrate. Not, I mean, you know. And he is the one using them. Why, thank you. <laughs> See, I always like Ken. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty, yeah. I feel the ending scene in the searches was anti-racist. It was redemption. He's bringing Debbie back, overlooking what she's been become, so he would not pick that. That was anti-racist. And also, Paths of Glory is very hypocritical because he is uh, indicating on the beginning uh, that we should not get involved in fighting other people's wars, but then he's not um, centering on the point of uh, the excesses of the wealthy. You might say, out of Menju could be the Trump figure in the film. 
because he was the one, he was the main general uh, sending men off to war. So I think it was sort of hypocritical, um, him using um, paths of glory. Uh, I think it's all hypocritical and strange. Um, what exactly is he arguing for? Um, that I'm the hero no matter what I do? After all, there is no such thing as tragedy. Tragedy is hopeful. Tell that to the Greeks. Um, I remember when we had this exchange about tragedy being hopeful, I say to him, what's hopeful about tragedy? I was thinking about Oedipus. You learn something from tragedy. What you learn from Greek tragedy is the hopelessness of human existence. Um, or the fulfillment of your dharma. Or the fulfillment yeah. of your dharma. Um, mm. It's the hopefulness of, of Kafka. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who in this exchange with his closest friend Max Broad, Max Broad asked Franz, Franz, surely you believe in hope. You know this story? No, I don't. It's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Franz, surely you believe in hope. And Kafka said, yes, of course, just not for us. <laughs> I think so. yeah. is it, this is a strange incident in terms of Bannon trying to play off of the film or not. I know that in Venice, uh, he happened to show up at the screening, but he was not part of the crew. It was a very, seemed to be a very strange thing that the Italian papers were talking about it. Uh, and he was there, but uninvited and uh, seemed to be trying to piggyback. And it turned out then that what he was doing in Europe was he was trying, he was rallying the far right. He'd been visiting with Orban. He'd been visiting with Le Pen in France. And this was a part of a stop on his tour. So I was just wondering if you, did you? Uh, his whirlwind uh, pro-fascist yes, tour. Right. <laughs> his global fascist yeah, tour. So I was wondering if you, if, if you knew about the incident or had seen him there or anything or that he... I never saw him in, in Venice. Uh, it became kind of, for me, you know, it put me into a, a, a state of despair about the movie, about what I was trying to do. Um, because no one really cared, it seemed, about the movie. Didn't care about the ideas expressed in the movie. Uh, it devolved very quickly into an endless discussion of deplatforming. It was coincidence with the events at the New Yorker. Um, and also the question of have I been hard enough on him? But independent of those two things, the obsession became, is he somewhere here in the room? Mm. Is he here at the festival? Is that him over there? Is that him? Um, a kind of, where is Waldo? You know, is, is Waldo hiding under the sofa? Uh, is he in the closet somewhere spying on us? Where is Waldo? I had this book, which I still love, Where's Waldo for Idiots? <laughs> and it had a two-page spread with just a lot of sand and a huge Waldo standing in the middle of it. I'd say, where's Waldo for Idiots? Oh, yeah, there he is. Um, you know, did I want my movie to become an occasion for where is Waldo, where you cross out Waldo and you write in Steve Bannon? Not really. Um, yeah, people ask me, is he here at the New York Film Festival? Um, I don't know. Well. 
I think if you were each, here, we, we'd know. Each one of you should look under your chair <laughs> as we speak here. Look very carefully. He might be in the room right now as we speak. Not to joke about this, but think about what he represents and what he's trying to do. And think carefully about making more people aware of it and figuring out how to stop it. I care more about how to stop him than where he's located specifically at the moment. I saw the film last night. I thought it was really interesting, very provocative. Um, above all, he, Bannon struck me as an egomaniac, above all else. And like a lot of egomaniacs, he kind of had sort of a charismatic, blustery appeal, which I think, he, although he sort of appears innocuous, sometimes um, the audience at moments will forget that... Um, deplorable things he's saying because he kind of looks like a good guy, you know, and you think, oh, maybe he's not actually so bad. Um, on some level, was it kind of enjoyable to talk to, talk to him because he was, because he did kind of have this charismatic appeal on some level? Uh, I would have to say yes. He's a kind of intellectual. He's read a lot of books. He's seen a lot of movies. Um, but I've had this experience fairly, I wouldn't say often, but I've certainly had this experience where you're talking to someone and you're not sure what's there. There's this performance going on, an elaborate performance in his case. But what really is there? I mean, they're just moments that, that something slips out. Uh, moments that I like to think are part of what I do as a filmmaker, of him glowering at me and twitching. Um, people think that the failure to answer a question is a failure on the part of the interviewer. Uh, I would, again, respectfully disagree. Sometimes those moments are the most powerful moments that I've put on film. His inability to say anything, his glowering at the camera and at me. I had this strong feeling when I was interviewing Donald Rumsfeld for The Unknown Known that I was facing Someone, at first I thought he was hiding stuff from me. That it was all about refusal to, to give anything away, to be forthcoming. Um, and after a while it occurred to me, there might not be anything there. It might be all performance with n nothing underneath. Uh, which was the scariest thought of all. I remember asking him, because we were looking at a photograph of him in the Oval Office with Gerald Ford, Henry Kissinger, and this is one of the worst days, um, I suppose, in American history, the end of a terrible debacle. We're evacuating the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. People are clamoring uh, onto helicopters. And I asked Rumsfeld, well, what did you learn from this? What did you learn from the war in Vietnam and this ultimate disaster that took millions upon millions of lives, close to 60,000 American servicemen? What did you learn? And he said to me, well, some things work out, some things don't. That didn't. And I remember thinking, I remember the answer made me really, really sad and fucked up. 
and I thought, maybe he's serious. Maybe this is what you get. Maybe this is his version of the profound. With Bannon, look, I've watched him now since I made this movie. He's been interviewed, uh, I hesitate to use the word endlessly, but how about a lot? He's been interviewed by The Economist. He's been interviewed by 60 Minutes. He's been interviewed by CNN. You know, he's been interviewed by Bill Maher just in the last couple of days. Uh, interview after interview after interview after interview. And were the questions not tough enough? Uh, the questions were plenty tough. But the answers were all the same. They were a recitation of, they were a kind of strange, grim performance art where you parry the question by saying the same non-responsive answer. Let's get people their sovereignty back. I don't know how you feel about the phrase, but it does not explain very much to me. Mm -hmm. And then what about this war against, you know, the quote unquote, I'll spare you the air quotes, the party of Davos. Um, did we learn nothing from the 20th century that all of these in, in a warring states would produce disaster? What have we tried to do? We've tried to create some kind of international community, some kind of international understanding to prevent what happened in the 20th century from happening again. Have he learned nothing? Does he care about nothing? He tells us, I'm a honey badger. Honey badger don't give a shit. He just wants to win. I see him, okay, you've got me started now. I see him there at that second debate, ushering the reporters in to see the, uh, the attackers. Of, of, of Bill Clinton. And you look at his face, it's a look of sheer delight, yeah. of, of happiness, yeah. of vindictive, mean pleasure. And yeah, be scared. That would be the correct response because here is a person who at his core does want to destroy everything. And they indeed will destroy everything unless we find a way to stop them. Most people, including myself, can't believe what's going on. They just can't believe it. It's like some kind of grim nightmare. You know, whether you're watching the Senate hearings or you're hearing, you know, a Trump press conference, uh, it's all crazy and unbelievable. It's surreal. It's real and surreal. Mm. Um, and people like Bannon is the scariest. Like, we can all write Trump off as being, you know, a moron. Bannon is not a moron. But he is a cynical bastard. And no one, absolutely no one, should turn their back on him. Quite right. We have to call it a night. There are a lot more questions that we could, that we could discuss, a lot more issues that we could discuss. But um, I really want to thank you all for coming in, Errol. I want to thank Kent. Kent has been quite splendid. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. 
You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.